You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. So open our Bibles to the scripture reading this morning. I'm going to read Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigyano. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His holy cover, His glory covered the heavens and His praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from His hand where His power was hidden. Plague went before Him. Pestilence followed His steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. Mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by, the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Here we come to verse 17, and this is our text from verses 17 to 19. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights for the director of music on my stringed instruments. Let's read our text together one more time. Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. For the Director of Music on my stringed instruments. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
If you've been watching the stock markets this past week, you know that it's been a rough ride. The work week started off Monday morning with a 1,200-point drop on the TSX. And on Tuesday morning, Vancouver Sun's front-page story was about whether or not we're headed for a recession. As the week went on, things went from bad to worse. On Friday, Australian markets took their biggest hit ever, leading some down under to call it Black Friday. Things were no better elsewhere in the world. There's a lot of economic uncertainty at this moment. And we might think that it doesn't affect us too much, but taking that perspective is rather naive. After all, many of us have RSPs, and this could dramatically affect either present or future retirement incomes. And for those of us who who haven't even thought about retirement, because it's so far off in the future, if the economy goes in the tank or we hit a recession, we could be faced with unemployment or underemployment and at least a considerably lower standard of living than what we've been accustomed to. Who knows what might happen? Who knows if this is just a a one-time major glitch in the global economy or whether this is the beginning of something far more serious. Whatever the case might be, tomorrow is Thanksgiving. Every year we pause for a special day of remembering how God has blessed us. We give thanks to our Father who has cared for us in the year gone by. But how can we do that this year? if we're faced with this economic uncertainty and even a possible economic crisis? What if your RSP has taken a major hit, lost thousands of dollars, and it looks like things may get worse before they get better? Well, this isn't the first time that God's people have been faced with the possibility or the reality of an economic crisis or any crisis. In years gone by, Reformed ministers have comforted God's people with His Word as they faced the Great Depression of the 1930s. When the Second World War came and went and left so much economic devastation in its wake, especially in Europe, the pulpit gave guidance from the Scriptures. And if we go back much, much further, if we go back to the time of the Old Testament, we find the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk, too, lived in a time of economic, political, societal instability. And he was a prophet to whom God had revealed that things were going to go from bad to worse. There was a coming storm of judgment. The day of reckoning was coming, and when it would arrive, the consequences would be severe for everyone. But in the face of that, God's prophet takes an attitude of faith. And as we face the possibility of an economic crisis, we do well to pay attention to God's word for us this morning. And I preach it to you with this theme, an attitude of faith in the face of economic crisis. We'll consider the seriousness of the crisis, and second, the sound reasons for faith. Habakkuk lived in the late 7th or early 6th century before Christ, lived in the land of Judah. And as he looked around him, as he surveyed society, 
there in the land of Judah, he saw corruption and he saw oppression, injustice. And he called out to the Lord to set things right. To not let this go on. And God responded. God said that He would take care of it. He would make things right. And He would do so through the Babylonians. God told Habakkuk that the Babylonians would come. They would invade. They would destroy the land. And they would be His instrument to chastise or to discipline His people. Habakkuk didn't like that. He didn't like that idea at all. And so he complained to God about a more wicked pagan people being used to punish the lesser wicked people of God. Well, God answers that complaint as well. God answers that also the Babylonians would get their due. And all of that takes place in chapters 1 and 2 of this little prophecy. Chapters that you could read for yourself later on today. In fact, I would encourage you to do that. When we come to chapter 3, we find a prayer. Basically, this is a psalm. And it's modeled along the same lines as the Psalms of David, the 150 Psalms. For instance, the psalm ends with an inscription giving an instruction on how the psalm is to be played, much like many of the psalms begin with such an inscription. In this psalm, Habakkuk stands in awe of God and his deeds of salvation, his deeds of judgment in in times gone by. And especially, he reflects on God's deliverance of his people Israel during the time of the exodus from Egypt. During that time, salvation came for God's people. They were delivered while wrath and judgment were poured out on their enemies. In verse 16, he comes to the present and approaching storm. When he thinks about it, his heart pounds in his chest. His lips quiver. And he feels the fear. Feels the fear even in his bones. His knees knock together. The coming judgment on God's people is comparable to the judgment that their enemies faced in the Exodus. It's going to be a day of calamity when the Babylonians show up. Now to understand the seriousness of what Habakkuk was facing, you have to know something about the Babylonians and their reputation as being fierce warriors. A well-deserved reputation. When the Babylonians invaded a land... There was no mercy. There was no Geneva Convention in the days of the Babylonians. There was no mercy or very little. Everything in their path was destroyed. And so typically, they ended up laying siege to the major city or cities where the people would run, where they would seek safety. And in a siege, the walls would be surrounded No one could get in. No one could get out. And sieges typically didn't last for one or two days. Typically, sieges would go on for years. And in that time, eventually food would be in short supply in the city. And eventually people would be starving. And you can even read about it in the Bible that many would resort to cannibalism. And eventually people would get fed up 
And they would get worn out with it. And they would surrender. And the Babylonians would rush in and they would sack the city and they would kill most of those who had waited out the siege. And those who they left alive, they would carry away into captivity. You can see why having the Babylonians invade your land was something that would make any Israelite's knees knock. And with verse 17, the beginning of our text, Habakkuk introduces us to another practice of the Babylonian armies. Their scorched earth tactics. When the Babylonians would invade a land, they would destroy everything along the way. Setting fire to the fields, chopping down trees, poisoning wells. Doing everything in their power to ensure that the enemy would be on its knees for a very long time. We call this practice a scorched earth tactic. And it's been done more often in history. Just think back to 1991 when Saddam Hussein set fire to all the Kuwaiti oil wells. That was also scorched earth. Literally. Habakkuk knows that when the Babylonians invade, they're bringing their axes. And the fig trees are going to be targeted. Now, fig trees not only provided tasty food, they also provided shelter and shade. The fig tree came to symbolize in Israel the good life. Dwelling under your own fig tree was a an image of safety and prosperity. For instance, we're told in 1 Kings 4.25 that during Solomon's reign, every man dwelt under his own fig tree. Fig trees took a long time to grow and to bear fruit. And if they've all been cut down, or if many of them have been cut down, it's going to be a long time before anyone is enjoying any figs or finding any shade. Something similar holds true with the grapes. If there are no grapes on the vines because they've all been cut or burned, that means no wine. And in the Bible, wine is associated with joy and gladness. For instance, Psalm 104.15 speaks about wine as something that makes the heart of man glad. When the Babylonians show up, that's gone. Olives are mentioned next, and they were one of the most valuable trees in ancient Palestine, and particularly for their oil. Olive oil was valuable for food and for cooking. It was valuable for lighting lamps, for medicinal purposes, and much more. And in the best of times, the oil harvest was unpredictable. And if there was a poor olive season, what would inevitably follow for many people would be poverty. According to Joel 2, a good oil harvest was a sign of God's blessing. Now, unlike fig trees, when when olive trees get axed, new shoots right away start springing out from the stump. However, it can still be a long time before the trees start producing fruit again. And those are going to be Hard times. The Babylonian invasion would also have its impact on the fields. Either the people would be confined to the besieged city and unable to tend the fields, or the Babylonians would burn the fields, ensuring that there would be no crop. Either way, the fields won't be producing. 
And as for sheep and cattle, many of them will be slaughtered by the Babylonians. And those that aren't are going to be wandering here and there and everywhere. Habakkuk portrays a scene of economic and societal devastation. A crisis of huge proportions. This wasn't just a recession or a depression, but a holocaust. And then we get to verse 18. And we find these words that just seem so out of place. So disconnected from what precedes. Habakkuk says that even in that worst case, holocaust scenario, he's going to exalt in Yahweh, in the Lord. And that word for exalt indicates an enthusiastic and expressive rejoicing. There's no reluctance here whatsoever. This is no holds barred rejoicing. And elsewhere in Scripture, when this word is used, it's God's character that provides the the reason or the basis for this jubilation. And that leads us to ask, what is it about God? What is it about God's character that gives Habakkuk a reason to rejoice, to have this positive attitude of faith towards God? Even in the midst of the worst possible adversities, adversities that God Himself brings on. Well, look at the next line of verse 18, where he says, I will be joyful in God my Savior. Now, if that first word wasn't expressive enough of this joy, then he adds this other word. Literally, it means that he's going to shout with joy. And again, this is not a forced reaction. This is not a joy where you force a smile on your face, where you sing the happy songs because it's your duty, because it's your obligation to do it, something you're expected to do. Instead, this joy that Habakkuk writes about, it comes from the heart. It's 100% sincere, not mixed with any pretension or ostentation. And the basis is there in those words, God, my Savior. With those words, we have to go back again to what Habakkuk had been writing earlier in this psalm. God was the Savior of His people through the Exodus. The Exodus, which is the the salvation event par excellence in the Old Testament. When Israelites reflected on the fact that God was their Savior, they would think back to what had happened. For instance, what happened at the Red Sea. How God wiped out Pharaoh and all his armies with a wall of water. God saved them. But all of that was not the ultimate Deliverance. Believing Israelites recognized that God's saving work was to be fulfilled in the seed of the woman who had crushed the head of the serpent. God would save through the coming Messiah. The Christ would be the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And and then there would be salvation. Not just from human threats, from from the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Assyrians or whoever else. Not just from the human threats, but from the divine threat. From God's eternal wrath. 
Habakkuk says that reflecting on the fact that God is his Savior is what gives him the ground for rejoicing, for shouting for joy. Now remember that Habakkuk lived before Christ. He could only see the promises and the prophecies. He didn't know the reality. Now here we are. We live 2,000 years after the Lord Jesus was on earth. And we can look back at what the Bible says, and we can know that almost everything for our salvation has taken place. Almost everything. There's a few things left. Everything happened according to plan, and the result, salvation for us. Through Jesus Christ, we have been forgiven We have been reconciled to God. We have been received into His family. Through Christ, we have the assurance of God's love for us. That He will never forsake us. If Habakkuk, knowing what he did and relating to God in the ways that Old Testament people could, if he could say, I will rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful in God my Savior, if Habakkuk could say that, what about us? What about us today who, who are far richer? Loved ones, that challenges us with some questions. Does our joy in life depend on our outward prosperity? Even when everything in the economy and in our lives heads south, when all those things are endangered or or taken away, are we fully persuaded that our lives are in the loving hands of our Father? Do we believe that we are God's children, that He is our Father? Jesus Himself sent a letter to a New Testament church in, in Revelation 3. And he said, and he was quoting from the Old Testament when he said this, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Sometimes, God's children need to be disciplined by their Father. Can we accept that from God's hand with faith and even with joy, knowing that He is our Savior? Commenting on this verse, John Calvin provided some helpful direction. He said that sometimes signs of God's wrath meet us in outward things. Some of these signs have to do with chastisement for God's children. Some of them have to do with punishment for the wicked. Some of them are both. But when that happens, Calvin says we have a remedy. We have medicine to help us. He says that we are to consider what God is to us inwardly. For he says, and I quote, The inward joy which faith brings to us can overcome all fears, terrors, sorrows, and anxieties. When we come to the last verse, this attitude of faith is encouraged again. Habakkuk says, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. 
Now, before the sermon, we sang from Psalm 18, stanzas 1 and 10. And I don't know if you noticed, but verse 19 is a direct quote from that psalm. Take note of that. Habakkuk is faced with a crisis, a holocaust. Tough times are ahead. And where does he go for encouragement? Where does he go to have his heart lifted up to God? He goes to the book of Psalms. He gathers words of hope and confidence from the Psalms. The Psalms are God's covenant prayer book, His covenant song book. Through the ages, God's people have always turned to the Psalms for the the words which capture not only their joy, but also their sorrow, their concerns, their anxieties, and even their anger. The Psalms are there for you to give you the words, to lead you in prayer, and to lead you in song. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to pray the Psalms. To use them in your personal devotions as a, as a guide for prayer in whatever circumstances you find yourself. And especially when you have a hard time finding the words for yourself. Use the Psalms. That's what they're, they're there for. They're a gift from God to lead us in our prayers. And as we read and as we pray and sing them, we do so with our eyes fixed on Christ the one who is the fulfillment of all the Psalms. He said in Luke 24, 44, that the Psalms speak of Him. They testify to Him. And so it is also with Psalm 18, as as quoted by Habakkuk here. Let's see how that works. Habakkuk was encouraged by Psalm 18, by the knowledge that God is His strength. When everything around you is falling apart, when something is kicking the spit out of the economy, you feel more acutely your weakness. You feel more acutely your utter dependence on God. You are weak, but He is strong. Yahweh is the one whose strength never fails. He is a rock. That's a picture of strength, isn't it? A rock and a refuge. But what does this strength look like? Well, how does it play out in the life of a believer? Habakkuk says that he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. Deer are nimble. They are fleet-footed. They are graceful. When danger approaches, they can get out of dodge just like that. And so things may be going to pieces around him, but Habakkuk is still going to be on his feet. He's confident that he's not going to be just barely standing, but he's going to be able to run. He's going to be able to keep going. The danger may be there, but the crisis won't be able to hurt him in the ways that really matter. And then finally he says, he enables me to go on the heights. High places are places of safety. Places where the danger cannot reach. God will put him there, above the fray. He's certain that even in the midst of this crisis, God's hand will be on him and and under him 
and with him, guiding him. That was the hope of an Old Testament believer faced with imminent crisis. And as New Testament believers, we we can share that same perspective of faith, that joy and even thankfulness in the face of adversity. Habakkuk says that God is his strength. In 1 Corinthians 1, 24, we read that Christ is the power of God. And in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul relates how he learned that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says that he embraces weakness so that Christ's power would rest on him. Echoing the words of Habakkuk, Paul says that he delights, (laughs) he delights in weaknesses, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. (laughs) He delights in all those things. Amazing. When faced with adversities, beloved, we need to rest and trust in Christ who is our strength. And there, in Christ, we will find joy. We will find delight, just like Paul did. We will find the resources to be thankful, even when times are tough. Loved ones, looking to Christ, we can be sure that No crisis can hurt us in the ways that really matter. Looking to Christ, we can be certain that God will put us on high places where His loving hand will be on us and and under us and guiding us. In Romans 8, Paul writes about all kinds of crisis situations. There are troubles, hardships, persecutions, Famine, nakedness, danger, swords. You name it, it's there. It's included in all those categories. But God gives us deer's feet. He makes us walk on high hills. Paul puts it this way, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And then he adds that there's nothing at all in this world No foreign invaders, no stock market meltdown, no recession, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ, we have the guarantee of God's love for us. And so we can rejoice from our hearts. We can even shout for joy. We can have a a truly Thankful Thanksgiving. Even if everything else is taken away from us, we will always have Christ. We will always have God's love for us in Him. And again, we don't know what the days and weeks ahead may hold. No one. No one but God knows. Maybe this is all hype. And maybe there really is no rational reason to think that a a recession or a depression is ahead. Maybe life will go on just as usual. I don't know. Loved ones, whatever develops, whether it's status quo or massive upheaval or something in between, 
Remember who is in control. Remember who your God is. Remember what He's done in ages past. Remember that He is your Savior. That He is your strength. That He is the one who loves you and will carry you through. And all of that is guaranteed through our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we thank You for Your Word of promise to us that You will always be our Savior and our strength. We praise You as the One who makes our feet like those of the deer, who makes us to walk on high places. Father, we thank You for Your love guaranteed for us in Jesus Christ. We have every reason to be thankful to You, to rejoice in You, even to shout for joy to You. Even if the world falls apart around us and we lose everything, we ask You to give us more grace so that Habakkuk's confident confession of faith would be ours. Teach each one of us to be joyful, thankful, faithful in all circumstances. We pray, Father, that You would also continue to guide the events in the world around us. And we pray that if it is Your will to chastise us with adversity, that we would recognize this, that we would learn from it the necessary lessons. Oh God, please lead us and guide us. We ask You to do that for the glory of Your own name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Christ we pray. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.